Engel. In football or soccer, there are rules for a ball out of play. That's exactly where we're taking you in this podcast series, Out of Play. Beyond the rules, beyond the pitch, beyond the game. Because every four years during the World Cup, it's more than a simple story of goals scored and athletic displays. Sometimes the really interesting part starts after the final whistle. We've crossed the world to talk with journalists and passionate fans to bring you some of these stories that all have one thing in common, the World Cup. In the stories you'll hear, some of you weren't even born yet. For others, you might remember it like it was yesterday. This series, Out of Play, takes you inside eight of these tales, thanks to the people who actually lived them. You may wonder, why choose an American to help tell you these stories? Well, it's obvious. We're neutral. We're never in the World Cup. Some people believe a new Spain was born when Barcelona hosted the 1992 Olympic Games. It's partly true that 1992 was the beginning of the Spain we know today. Those 1992 Olympics weren't the first time Spain entertained on an international scale. Ten years before the Olympics, Spain hosted the 1982 World Cup. The differences between World Cup Spain and Olympic Spain? You could say it's almost like two different countries. The 1982 World Cup saw one of the most talented teams with Brazil's lineup, and Italy won the main round with three ties. Germany and Austria plotted against Algeria. And this edition of the World Cup also saw the end of a Spain that hadn't yet said goodbye to the Franco dictatorship. Before bidding adieu to its fascist past, the old Spain was still alive and well during that World Cup. Spain has changed a lot since 1982. Now fully integrated into the European Union and with nearly 40 years as a democracy, the country is almost unrecognizable compared to when it hosted the 82 World Cup. Of course, the country still has problems, like the independence movement of Catalonia. But what country doesn't have its issues? It's clear, though, Spain is in a much better place today than in 1982. Back then, some people in neighboring France joked that Africa began in the Pyrenees, the mountainous border between the two countries, a derogatory perspective on Spain. Now, Spain joined the EU in 1986, just eight years after Spain officially left behind Franco's dictatorship. Franco's ruthless reign lasted from the end of the Spanish Civil War in 1939 until he died in 1975. 36 years of fascism leaves a mark on a country, a bad one. Spain went from being one of the most modern countries in the world in the times of La República to being led by an oppressive, ultra-conservative Catholic elite for almost half a century. If Spain still hasn't completely overcome that political and cultural heritage today, imagine what it looked like in 1982. Like the rest of Spain, Franco was crazy about football. Ever since the British miners played football in the late 19th century in southern Spain, football became an integral part of Spanish culture. 
Just a few years after the creation of the first club in the mining town of Huelva, the Recreativo de Huelva, football teams started to pop out all over the country. Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atlético de Madrid, Desportivo, Atlético de Bilbao. Spanish football hit its golden age under Franco. The dictator was a huge fan of Real Madrid. The team was the best in Europe at one point. They won the first five European championships from 1956 until 1960. Real Madrid was good PR for Franco. He could show the world how happy, victorious, and united the Spanish people were. No one could say the contrary with that image. In 1964, Spain's national team won its only international tournament, which it wouldn't do again until 2008. At the 1964 Euro, Spain beat the Soviet Union in the final. Franco was thrilled. Real Madrid reigned supreme in European football, and the national team had defeated the communists. What more could he ask for? However, from these days also comes an idea that became an issue for generations of Spanish footballers, the furia, the rage, the fury, or the grit. It's the idea that the dictatorship wanted to create of Spanish men. It also seeped into the world of Spanish football. Players had to be extremely aggressive, as if they were at war with their opponents. The virility of the Spanish had to be witnessed on the pitches. Players were not players. They were considered to be soldiers, fighting to show how tough Spain was. In the eyes of Franco, this was so much more important than technical skill. Kind of crazy when you think about the national team that won the world title for Spain in 2010. Because, as you can imagine, the times of the Silly Furia never really worked. It wasn't until the arrival of old wise man Louis Aragones in 2004 that Spain began to play the way they always should have, tiki-taka style. But that's another story. The first elections in Spain were held in 1977. The country hadn't had free elections since the 30s. Liberal left-wing parties were legalized and could finally come out of hiding. So that meant communists, Leninists, socialists, anarchists, Trotskyists could join the public political conversation. They could finally speak in the streets without fear of going to prison or, or worse. Hundreds of parties were created, many of them disappearing shortly after the 1977 elections. Forty years of darkness clashed with a newfound hope for change. The social fabric of Spain in those days was taut and threatened to tear. Old rulers were reluctant to give up control. Left-wing parties wanted power immediately, if not sooner. Much of the country was still afraid to move forward and to pick sides. Spain's first democratically elected prime minister was Adolfo Suárez, a leftover from Franco's regime. However, Suárez was forced to resign amid an economic crisis, criticism from his own party, and other things. The day he resigned, the pro-Franco military gave in to their nostalgia for dictatorship and launched a coup d'etat. February 23, 1981, almost one year before the World Cup, a military civil guard named Tejero entered Parliament. His troops opened fire, shooting at the ceiling. The bullet holes are still there. The coup failed, but the message was clear. Fascism was still alive in Spain. At the same time, 
the Basque conflict between terrorist group ETA and the Spanish government was raging. ETA killed 77 people in 1979 and more than 100 in 1980 and in 81. Meanwhile, ultra-right paramilitary groups and police carried out the state's dirty war against Basque citizens. Hundreds in the Basque region were tortured and killed. And during all of this, in 1982, the World Cup came to troubled Spain. FIFA decided in 1964 which countries to host the World Cup editions of 1974, 1978, and 1982. The Federal Republic of Germany was the favorite to host in 74. Spain was slated for 82. When that decision was made, Spain was still a dictatorship. And for dictators, there's nothing better than a big football competition to make people happy and help them forget their country's problems. For example, take a look at Argentina in 1978. The South American country hosted and won the World Cup in Buenos Aires while the military regime tortured and killed Argentinians not far from the city's monumental stadium. It's also not so different from the 1934 World Cup in Italy under a guy named Mussolini. Franco's regime in Spain saw the 1982 World Cup as a PR propaganda opportunity. Imagine if the Spanish Curia had won the World Cup on Spanish soil under the Franco regime. But it didn't quite work out as planned. The old dictator died before he saw Spain host and play a World Cup. Even if he had lived to see it, Spain's performance was nothing for the Spanish to be proud of, really. The national team's game was a disaster, as was the organization of the World Cup. But the Spanish were used to that. However, there was one positive aspect. The Spanish love football, and their passion shined through. The World Cup transformed the landscape of Spanish football. Its structure, economics, business, everything. It gave Spain a major boost to be a bit more on par with other European countries. After hosting the World Cup, how could Spain's passion for football not be off the charts? The iconic Brazilian team, the Polish surprise, and the appearance of the legendary Maradona are a few of the attractions that drew Spaniards to the stadiums in droves. 1982 was the first, and so far, the last World Cup hosted by Spain. Despite a messy organization, the political context, and the national team's pitiful performance, the welcome given by Spanish fans was stellar. Stadiums sparkled, people enjoyed the games, and the championship made history with one of the best teams ever, Brazil's lineup of Socrates, Zico, and company. But, as we said, the rest didn't work out so well for the Spanish. It wasn't that long ago that playing for Spain's national team was tough. The country's expectations were always high, but the team's quality wasn't as strong as it is now. The press used to be a pain in the ass for players, and especially for coaches. The World Cup put even more pressure on Spain's national team. They were the home team, playing in front of their people. Their main phase group, Northern Ireland, Yugoslavia, and Honduras, was not an easy crowd that year. And lastly, the team had been secluded in the Pyrenees for weeks as a security measure in case of an attack by the ETA terrorist group. All this pressure resulted in a disastrous performance. 
In Spain's first match in the 82 World Cup, Honduras scored first against Spain. The 50,000 spectators in Valencia's Luis Casanova Stadium were shocked. Four days later, the team, coached by much-criticized Emilio Santamaria, made a comeback, beating Yugoslavia 2-1, Spain's first victory in the home turf World Cup. And it was also Spain's last victory in the championship. In the last game of the main round, Spain lost to Northern Ireland 1-0, but finished as the top-seeded team in the group. With the difference of one more goal, Spain took the second spot, leaving Yugoslavia out of the next round. 90,000 fans went to Santiago Bernabeu Stadium in Madrid to watch Spain face off with West Germany in the second round. It didn't make much difference. Spain lost 2-1 and then tied with England in the last game of the second round. There was zero possibility of going through to the semifinals. Five games, one victory, two losses, and two draws. Those are the final numbers for Spain's performance in World Cup 82. Clearly not winning results. But one thing was certain. The passion and support of the people for the Spanish national team was enormous. Spain showed the world that its love for football was hard to beat. Well, actually, it was easy to beat the national team, but not the fans and their passion. Ultimately, Italy triumphed as the 1982 football world champions. Was Spain ready to host the World Cup? Probably not. Spain in 1982 was a country not so long out of its past of nepotism and dictatorship. The country had only just begun to become a democracy, to find hope and its place in Europe. The World Cup was a great stage for the Spanish to show the rest of the world how much they loved football. But the organization of the event was a failure. Corruption was rampant. Barcelona's Camp Nou seemed to be the perfect place to host the inaugural game between Argentina and Belgium. 1.5 billion spectators worldwide watched the opening ceremony and the debut match. But the stadium looked pretty dreary, with tons of empty seats. The reason was many of the tickets were clandestinely marked for reselling. Reselling, as a Spanish newspaper wrote last year, was one of the biggest problems at the World Cup. Thousands of people queued outside the stadiums to buy tickets, while many had already been sold to resellers. The biggest scandal, however, involved Mundiespaña, the official travel agency for the World Cup. As the newspaper El País wrote, its management deserved the many complaints that went to court. The tickets, sold together with hotel rooms, had a surcharge of 20%. High prices left many tickets unsold. Some visitors ended up in private homes, kilometers away from the stadiums, after having already paid for a hotel. As excited as the Spanish were about hosting the World Cup, the organizers were poorly chosen. Officials were appointed like in the old days, mutual back-scratching and nepotism-heavy business deals. Spain, as a country, and its people were ready to host the most important international event in football. But its institutions and their leaders, some of them left over from the Franco regime, were not. Corruption cheated Spain out of a legacy of what could have been a great World Cup, even if the national team didn't perform so well. Spain 82, with all its problems, all the corruption, 
with the national team's faceplant failures, was the last wheezing breath of an old Spain ready to move on. The country began to embrace its newfound freedom, to welcome modernity, and it opened up more to people and ideas from outside its borders. Although these growing pains wouldn't really culminate until the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, Spain 82 was the beginning of a beautiful goodbye to the country's dark past. Out of Play is produced by Angle. This episode was written by Fernando Marjavias. Sound production by V in Paris, France. Original score by Roman Pilo and Max Zippel. English version narrated by David Gassman. Find more episodes of Out of Play anywhere you find podcasts and on outofplaypodcast.com.